Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Game Podcast. I'm Gabriel Marcotti, and this week I'm joined by Paddy Barkley, Alison Rudd, and from the lovely northern hamlet of Rippenden, it's Oliver Kay. Today we'll be focusing on the FA Cup semifinals, and I'll also be asking what happens next to Arsenal. And I guarantee you, we'll have an answer in less than 102 minutes. <laughs> So please join us for 40 minutes or so of the best and most serious football conversation you'll hear all week. Guess what, Patty? No Premier League review this week because it's all about the FA Cup semifinal. Um, let's just get this out of the way because we haven't addressed it enough times in the past. Anybody want to defend the decision to have the two semifinals at Wembley? No. <laughs> No, I don't think uh, they should. Uh, that we should have semi-finals at Wembley. Unfortunately, in the real world, the cost of Wembley, the build, of build, rebuilding Wembley, meant that we have to. I mean, I think it's a matter of time before the quarterfinals arrive there. Um, but uh, yes, um, I'm afraid we have to in the real world. If we want Wembley, we have to play FA Cup semi-finals there. I, I you know, just on the. I mean, Ferguson for once in his life made a, a statesman-like point when he talked about the amount of petrol wasted in ferrying supporters to uh, to Wembley Stadium. A very, very good point, because, in my opinion, the National Stadium should have been built in the centre of the nation, somewhere near Coventry, uh, and that would have saved uh, the country and the fans a huge amount of money on balance. I worked it out once that uh, it's something like 45,000, 50,000 gallons of petrol are wasted per big occasion well, because train, of, no? of the sighting of, I, I mean, by the people who don't, who aren't able to squeeze onto the trains. And, uh, uh, you know, that's an issue that should have been addressed 10 years ago. Um, I, that that train comment was, was a joke, although we do encourage everybody <laughs> it was to a good one. Yeah, but God, God doesn't want but them to be played, the semi-finals <laughs> we played at Wembley. That's why he closed the M1. I mean, there are signs. There are signs. It's wrong. Oh, yeah, I'm assuming I was thought we could have a little mini debate at Wembley and somebody would stick up for for Wembley. I'm assuming you won't be sticking up for Wembley, despite the fact that all these people coming down from up north had their day out and spent money, which stimulates the economy and so on, and, and all this, the, the, the duty on the petrol then goes to the exchequer and helps pay for nurses and policemen and doctors and parliamentary inquiries. You're not, still not going to stick up for Wembley, right? Well, the, the only thing I would say in, in, uh, in its favour is that you looked at the at the crowd at the Man City Man United game, and it was what eighty five thousand yes. something like that. And if it had been at Villa Park, which is some people's favourite choice, or at Leeds, or at Anfield, or somewhere up north, you know, it, it would have been half of that crowd. And I, I mean, I'm sure a lot of Man United fans who were there wish they hadn't been, but I'm sure. 
every Manchester City fan is, is glad that they went to Wembley and every Stoke fan is, is glad that they went to Wembley and, and the fact that they'll, um, they'll they'll be there again next next month is you know it's not really going to take the shine off it but yeah. um, I, I, I did hear on Twitter from a Bolton fan who said he'd um, He'd, he'd, his bus hadn't turned up to Wembley or his bus had broken down then he, he got a flat tyre on the um, North Circuit on his way back uh, on his way back to Wembley and uh, way back from Wembley and uh, after a 5-0 defeat that, that sounded pretty grim but let's be honest it's um, these things happen don't they um Talking about the games itself, uh, all you mentioned City fans there. They made a, they made an incredible racket um, on the day. I, I think some people wrote that this was this was their cup final, obviously because it's a derby and it's Manchester United. That's um, exactly why it's wrong, though. They won't get as many fans there for the final, so you're in danger of having the semi-finals up as for an occasion, upstaging the final. That can't be right. Everyone you think City t- everyone won't talks sell out about the allocation for the final. You don't get a no. The t- no FA Cup final tickets. The allocation goes to bods, suits, FA bodies all around the country. Much, much, much fewer fans will be able to go to support their team at the final. So the semi-final becomes the beautiful day out. Everyone says you've got to be careful that we don't let the FA Cup become a nothing tournament. Maintain its romance. It's how special it is by having the semi-finals at Wembley you undermine it completely because what you saw yes what you saw at the semi-final was lovely the fans were loud and there were lots of them and, and the lovely boundary of colour was fantastic it seemed to be mainly fans in the stadium and you won't get that at the final so let's move on to the actual match I thought Manchester United I, I thought Berbatov had put away that, that chance and by the way I can kind of see even when he plays well why Sir Alex doesn't like to start him um I thought they could have won this game. Mm. Um, I thought it could have changed the game. But you have to give City credit for coming back, right, Paddy? Yeah, very good goalkeeping early on by by Hart. Uh, uh, a lot of people thought it was a missed chance by Berbatov, and there was an element of that. Manchester United could have been out of sight after 20 minutes, uh, but they weren't. Uh, and uh, the best team went on. The better team went on to win. Uh, but uh, I mean, the, the the reason for Manchester United's fade out uh, it was it was perturbing, uh, especially as they uh, got a ninety percent chance of playing in the the Champions League final um, on the same pitch. And I hope we're going to talk about the Wembley 90% pitch. Ninety percent chance. How do you figure that? At the beat Schalke. Isn't it a fifty-fifty chance? No, it's not a fifty-fifty chance. I mean, Schalke <coughs> Schalke win fewer than fifty percent of their games in the Bundesliga. So. Um, uh, and there's no team in the Bundesliga that's better than Manchester United. So, obviously, they have a, a negligible chance of beating Manchester United. But uh, uh, the, but the, I hope we'll talk about the Wembley pitch because the Wembley pitch could have a profound influence on the rest of the season and indeed could uh, deny Barcelona uh, the Champions League title. How so? Because it's a pitch... You remember long ball football, you remember Cambridge, you remember, you know, all that kind of stuff. What do, you, what do they do? They slow the pitch. They overwater the pitch, particularly in the corners, so that the wingers, so you can hit long balls for the mm. for, for the wide players who can then hoist it. <coughs> That's exactly how Stoke played on Saturday. The wingers were the stars. I mean, the, the quality was unbelievable. I, 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 it was an absolute joy to watch. But... 
if the pitch hadn't been so slow, they wouldn't have been able to do it to such success. And my worry is that Barcelona won't be able to play their normal game on that pitch because it is—it's gone back. It, it was—it played nice and uh, briskly for the Birmingham City Arsenal, uh, but it was back in its bad old ways over the two semi-finals. I and genuinely don't get that, Paddy. That through ball from <clears throat> Pennant to okay, we'll be getting to Stoke, so maybe we'll we'll, we'll it's the same pitch. We're talking about the pitch. We're talking about. An angle We're talking of ball. about Manchester City and Manchester United, and if you talk about Jermaine Pennant, why don't you make up a different example using a different <laughs> winger? That through ball to Adam Johnson, for example. Well, yeah, there were there were through the, well, the through ball of the semi-finals was the one in the Stoke game. Okay, but the, I, I did I genuinely, Paddy, did not see in either semi-final an incident that made well, me think um, that well, pit, that pitch is rubbish. Well, I'm, I'm telling you, it was it was there, and and I mean they. <clears throat> the um, it, it would be very very difficult for our, for for Barcelona to play their football uh, effectively on that pitch. Um, well, I, let's let's all trust in the UEFA gods that they will make sure that we will have standard pitches and that they'll stop this all this weird English habit of watering the pitch at all and liking to play on a wedge pitch, which I think is kind of weird and just sort of rather creepy actually. Um, but uh, Ollie, so we, we're talking about the pitch. We even managed to mention Jermaine Pennant and Stoke fans. We will get to you. Paddy, uh, Yaya Toure earlier this year, yeah. uh, you know, we got all this, oh, look, another defensive midfielder, and uh, he's making a scandalous amount of money. Although, if you actually talk to people at City, they'll tell you that that figure that gets bandied around is some kind of misrepresentation, mm. blah, blah, blah. But yeah. hey, people say he's slow, he's <laughs> lumbering, he's indolent, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Um, I just, I, I want to put this to you. It just be that he actually has a really unusual body type unusual combination of skills uh, it's not unusual because it, it's 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 all through the family you look at Colo Toure who's yeah, uh, Colo Toure is like a foot shorter than he is uh, but the point I'm trying to make is versatility mm. both of them can play on it in any position on the field uh, Colo Toure was a distinguished midfield player even before he came to, to Arsenal and, and established himself as one of the top centre-halves footballing centre-halves in the country uh, Yaya is exactly the same you noticed it in the Champions League final two 2009 when they had an injury crisis uh, at the back just switched him from holding mid to central defender won the game kept uh, did they keep a clean sheet I can't remember anyway um, uh, and brought in uh, Busquets in his role uh, won the game so <clears throat> both the Toure's uh, are remarkably uh, versatile they uh, as, as Jockstein once somebody once said uh, to Jockstein what, what, what's Kenny's best position Kenny Dalglish is he a attacking midfield player or a striker, he said, oh, just let him on the park. And I think the same is true of Colo Toure. And I must say... Yaya Toure. Uh, Yaya Toure, big, uh, and Colo, but Yaya, yeah, we're talking about Yaya. And uh, I must say that a 10 out of 10 to Mancini for realising that there was a way of stitching the midfield and the front together at Manchester City, which has been a, a problem, uh, by using his drive. And uh, yes, I think he was, he was my man of the match, uh, closely followed, of course, by Vincent Company. Yeah, uh, but it, hel- it helps if Michael Carrick gives you the ball. I mean, he did more than just score the goal. Right? Stitching is one thing, but I think I think the key was if you get a if you get Man United making a huge error that you capitalise at that very moment, which is what City did. Mm. Um, 
Ollie, in terms of Sir Alex's midfield, right, you've got you know one central midfielder giving the ball away and costing him a goal, uh, the other one getting himself sent off, and I, I don't really want to reopen an eternal Scholes debate. I think enough people know how I feel about this one. I, I, I contrast Scholes with Ryan Giggs, who mysteriously wasn't there, um, and I look at you know who's contributed more to the team who contributes more to the team regularly and and I think it's no contest mm-hmm. um but should should Fergie be a little bit worried or or annoyed at this stage um I think most people have looked at Manchester United's midfield over the last few seasons and said that the, the, the lack of um, the lack of real authority, well, not authority, but the lack of real physical presence um, in there is a problem. And Dan, Dan Fletcher has barely played, or has, has barely played well this season. And uh, he, he gives them physical presence in a different way. And I mean, going into those those uh, games against Chelsea, they had um, Carrick and Giggs in, in central midfield, and it looked like a weak, it looked like a weakness against a, a powerful Chelsea team. But but they did well over the over the, over the two games, and, and Chelsea didn't really um, press home that advantage. But against City, from sort of twenty minutes onwards, I mean, United were were overpowered in midfield, and Carrick and Scholes I thought offered very little. Um, one was made a mistake, as you say. One was sent off in pretty crass fashion, and. Um, that is United's weakness. Um, I'm sure they have other weaknesses as well, but that that will always be their weakness. And um, sometimes they'll they'll paper over the cracks there, and, and sometimes they won't. Be- regular listeners have heard plenty of me and Patty and Ollie talking about Paul Scholes, but <laughs> I just want to ask you, as, as a as a fellow member of that, that coloured hair fraternity or sorority in this case. Um, it's the age-old thing. People have so much respect for Scholes as a player, and then he does stuff like this, and nobody can understand it. And you know, inevitably, the pundit or the commentator sort of like, you know, sort of giggles nervously and says, <laughs> "Scholes, he just never learned to tackle." Ha ha ha! But obviously, it's, you know, he's 36. It's getting a little bit. It's wearing a little thin. I think that was the 10th red card of his career. Um, do you sympathize? When you played, did you learn how to tackle? Is it that difficult to learn how to tackle? It's not difficult to learn not to do what he did on Saturday. So now, he, that, that, did, did he do it because it was deliberate? Inexpl- that's inexplicable. I, uh, that, that, this is dangerous territory, saying that he he, he wanted to gouge the thigh. Um, and did you see the pictures of the thigh afterwards? It yeah. was pretty disgusting. I think he was intending to hurt his knee, actually, uh, which is even worse. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, that was, was probably a, the best-case scenario, that the gouge foul. on the thigh, yes, wasn't exactly. it? Yes, so exactly. The gouge on the, sh- the thigh would have been a lot nicer than what it he was trying me- to it do. It, it, it's, you could suggest, possibly, the game was running away from United. Skulls felt frustrated. Um, it wouldn't have been a conscious thought. It would have been subconscious frustration. And if you're a combative player, that and you are frustrated you end up especially if you're getting on in years you end up doing something that's illegal because you're not doing the legal things well enough um i mean ferguson said it's and and managers will always um uh, let players off if you like by saying it's part of their character if you have the beauty of the player and the energy of the player you have to accept that occasion you get the the automatic downside obviously it's not automatic there are many many feisty um excellent midfield players who don't resort to getting that many red cards in their career so um, but I, I mean you know, I'm not, I'm not going to say I think I think it was deliberate it was just a subconscious act of being frustrated and obviously you know if you're skulls you're not used you're not used to things running away from you United are usually on top you're normally on top This, it, it's not a 
sort of normal feeling. Big occasion running away from you. Yeah, I mean, if schools, if schools is gone, I'm f- that's not anybody else's fault. That's just the way it goes. And I just think it's so horrible. It was so horrible to see that. Uh, and it's not the first manifestation of, uh, of what's going on in his his mind and everybody else's um, you know the, he came on against Arsenal and uh, you know he nearly nearly crippled a couple of the Arsenal players and he, he only came on in the 86th minute he didn't have long to do it but he squeezed it in it's almost as if it's almost like a cry for help and, and I think it should be answered I don't think he should play again I think it's too much of a risk Actually Paddy that brings me to, to my next question yeah. uh, wrapping up our Paul Scholes segment um, you mentioned you shouldn't play again one of the sadder things is seeing people as they get older yeah. seeing their skills decline um, you know I'm, I'm hope that when my little girl grows old enough to yeah. watch television Paul Scholes still won't be playing because you know if his skills decline or whatever she'll you know she won't believe me when I tell her yeah. he's actually once uh, an outstanding footballer even on Saturday hit the um, best part of the day exactly of the day um if you're Sir Alex, do you give him? Do 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 you keep him around another season? No, not in a million years. Not uh, not as a footballer. Um, as a what? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Ambassador, <laughs> speech maker. <laughs> I don't know, but uh, definitely not as a footballer. I don't think there is any longer a milieu in which he can be useful without the risk. Um, I, I mean, it, it, there's no point in playing him in the, the early rounds of the Carling Cup. That's for the young ones. Um, there's, there's, I, the, I don't think there's any function for him. But it, 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 at the level at which Manchester United aspire to play, and indeed play, he, he's, he's a liability now. Um, I, I was just going to. I mean, I, I agree with uh, Paddy on on Scholes' tackling. I, I think it, it's, it's pretty outrageous that he's got to this stage of his career and, and still been allowed to get away with it by uh, by Alex Ferguson. But I do think he. I mean, if you look at some of his performances, certainly in the early part of the season, I think you can certainly see a case for at least offering him the chance to um, to, to carry on playing for another season. If he costs. 70 grand a week or something like that 80 grand a week which has probably been a, a steal for Manchester United over the years then it's going to be a, a lot harder to replace um, that quality uh, and that experience on, on that kind of budget I mean United aren't gen- don't generally tend to be blessed with money at least not money to, to spend on their own terms and um, I could see the case of Ferguson saying look play on if you want to if you don't want to then um then, then, then go with our with our blessings. But I mean, I, I, I don't think um, they should ever rush players like that into retirement because we could have been having this debate about skulls two years ago, three years ago, four years ago because he he committed these kind of challenges and and often looked off the pace um, in those days. But then he would have a he would have a performance a few days later where where he passed the ball ninety two times and only gave it away once he's he's I mean he he is a fading force but but he still has something I mean it was was always a trade-off I remember back in when Keegan was the England manager he he had one of he had a performance and we're we're saying it's ageing but he wasn't ageing in in 1999 when he committed three of the worst fouls you will ever see in a goalless draw against Sweden at Wembley um, I mean, the Swedes still talk about it, um, and 
uh, and 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 there, you know, in fact, on on Saturday he made history by becoming the first player to be sent off both at the old Wembley and the new, uh, a record which will probably never be beaten. Um, so I mean, it's it's been a, it's been a long, long time. It's been too long, and I think it's past a joke now. We're going to mo- talk about the other semi-final, and uh, as I read in, in in Oliver Kay's excellent piece today, um, Stoke scored five goals, and there's no set pieces, no yellow cards for them. All goes from open play. Um, Allison, do you agree with uh, Ollie Kay's assessment? And if you don't, don't worry about it. I'm sure he's not listening. Um, <laughs> and also, how did this come about? I mean, is this really a change? Were Bolton that bad? Was it just a case of Stoke adapting to the situation? Uh, well, I've, I've I've never quite understood where all the criticism of Stoke has ever come from. They've always been a team that mixed it up. I thought it's just I think that when they first came into the Premier League, there were an awful lot, there's an awful lot of analysis of their long throw technique, which there's was also so maybe playing which the was center, so no, which was maybe, sorry, Alice, maybe it's also playing centre backs at full backs. Maybe it's the way Tony Pulis talks and looks. No, and, no, no, no. It stemmed entirely from the fact it gave Shawcross it on gave, Ramsey, no? it gave the TV studios something to talk about. Mm-hmm. It was fun. And so you get a label straight away that you can only score from doing something slightly unfootball-y. And then you, and then, and then everything you do is seen in a particular light. And I've only ever seen Stoke mix it up. Yes, often they've won a game because they've got a big man up for a corner or they've got a long throw. But it, it, for most of the ninety minutes, they have put together a variety of play that has seen them baffle opponents, which is why they've stayed in the Premier League. And I think it's I, well, I agree entirely with Ollie. I thought it was poetic justice, and it was really rather lovely that they won it without resorting to any of the things that any of their critics could point to as being anti-football. Paddy, I, I don't yeah. think long balls and physical play are, are, are anti-football. I think, no, I don't I think they're part of football. And, and I, I, lo- I love watching Delap's long throws. I just I, wish they wouldn't let him uh, have towels. To I, I don't really enjoy the long throws, but I mean, I, I, I think Stoke did play a certain way. I think Stoke changed um, halfway through last season um, to some degree. I think that's when they started mixing it up a little bit. But I think to, to sort of start depicting Stoke as, you know, Brazil 1970, I, I, I think is, is a bit of a stretch. No one's doing that, which is saying. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. They've always mixed it up. It shouldn't have been such a surprise that they could play nice football at Wembley. Yes, and I think also, I mean, uh, uh, most people, if you if you really love football, you it, it, just as a, a cricket fan will love to see a spinner, um, uh, a, a football, a real football fan will like to see a winger. And we had a magnificent uh, exposition of wing play yesterday from Stoke City on, on 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 either side. It's very, very, very seldom that you see two wingers perform on the same day to the stand that Etherington and uh, Pennant did and, and I found that an absolute joy to watch uh, Ollie um, Etherington I thought was, was outstanding we put Pennant in the same in the same category 
Yeah, Pennant was excellent. I mean, he's always had the ability, Pennant. I mean, he showed it in flashes at, um, at Birmingham, certainly, and, and less so, I mean, more sporadically at Liverpool. But um, his career had gone into free fall a, a little bit, or at least it, 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 he'd fallen off the radar a little bit when he moved to Spain, and that didn't really work out. But his performances since he went to Stoke have been have been excellent. Um, and Edrington, uh, as, as Paddy says, he's, he's just been a fantastic signing for, for, for Stoke. And he, but those two have transformed them into a you know, more of a footballing team. I mean, we were talking about them direct football earlier and saying that often direct teams like to like to use wingers and like to hug the touchline and so on but, but maybe that's the case but if you look at if you look at the, the way they play it is attractive that those two those two wide players and, and the, I mean the, the goals that Stoke have scored um, over the years uh, it, I'm sure if you look at the first few months of their Premier League existence, a very large proportion of them um, were coming from Rory Delap long throws and, and from corners. I think a far larger proportion now come from uh, the wing player of Pennant and Everton. Well, he simply wasn't playing two wingers, um, you, know, yeah. you know, until recently. And I think that's, I think there's no question there's, there's, there's a difference in style if you have two wingers. It's not like before Pennant got there, there was another Pennant type who wasn't as good. Mm. Um, there was often Delap, actually. Uh, as, uh, as as the wide the wide midfielder, yeah. um, I think we also have to be careful not to judge them on this uh, to go too far on this one performance. I mean, after all, they they could easily be relegated. I mean, it's uh, it's uh, uh, and they've they've lost five away games in a row in the Premier League so um, they're, they're, they're not always as good as they were yesterday but my word they, they, they showed yesterday what they're capable of looking at uh, Alison looking at Bolton um, all season long we've been talking about Owen Coyle he plays football the right way and I look at this 11 he put out against Stoke and Correct me if I'm wrong here, Ollie, and you can maybe tell us how they actually lined up on the pitch. It was different from television, but I see one holding midfielder there in Fabrice Mwamba. Mm. Um, what kind of a weirdo formation is this? Well, it was it was a sort of four four two kind of four one three two. It didn't work. Uh, I, I think. Um, but what was he trying to do? I couldn't tell you. <laughs> You, you didn't ask him. You didn't think to ask him after the game. I, I didn't. He was in. He was in the press conference for a short time. There were lots of questions to ask. But mm. the. Um, but Bolton are weaker without Stuart Holden in, in the area. I, I think he was one of the sort of unsung heroes of the Premier League for the first um, sort of first part of the season, and they have missed him. And they've, they've sort of experimented with various things over the past few weeks, and, uh, and they. That they certainly missed his presence in, in there yesterday. I mean, um, Elmander is a is a technically very good footballer, and, and I've seen him play in a, a, a deeper role certainly for Sweden um, in the past. But, but it really didn't work yesterday. I think uh, Coyle made uh, sort of more or less ad- admitted afterwards that uh, he'd. He'd, he'd sort of predicted um, Bolton's team, and personally, I hate four-one. What was it four-one-three-two as a formation? I think it's ridiculous, and I saw England playing it the other day, which worried me greatly. But uh, uh, Coyle, basically, Coyle did pick a, a terrible side, um, uh, and this is what 
um, Pulis used Walters for. He pushed Walters onto Mwamba, uh, took him out of the game, and uh, you know there was there was just nothing left. So we're able to run through Bolton for the rest of the game. And if Bolton don't have Holden and they don't have oh, Holden's so and important, he's, and they don't have Sturridge either, who's the key player for Bolton? It's Kevin Davis. Who did Tony Pulis say they focused on? Kevin Davis. Kevin, if you can did, stop him, you can stop him winning those flick-ons. You've you've stopped most of. I don't think so, threat. actually, at all. With this Kevin Davis, I mean, I, from what I seen, I think in Elmander, you know, I, I, I saw Pulis say that on television. I think I don't know if Pulis really thinks that, but I mean, I think the the the, the threat in a game like this could have been a guy like C.Y. Lee or 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 Almander, you know, as much because obviously if I'm sending Kevin Davies, I know he's wonderful in the air, but if I'm sending him against Shawcross and Hooth, you know, I I know it's it's gonna be tough for him all day. Mm. And that's why you can maybe get a mismatch with Almander. You yeah. can you can send Chung Young Lee running at players. I mean I think with hindsight, I think Coyle is sitting there saying, yeah. you know, they were very good, we were awful. Yeah. But I made all these mistakes that, that, that made us worse. And I think, yeah. you know, evidence of this is the fact that, that at halftime, you know, he took off Petrov, who, you know, is like a, is, is a nice idea but does no work defensively, and, 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 and Klasnich, and, and replaced them with, uh, with Mark Davies and, and Matty Taylor, yeah. you know, two sort of more traditional players to, to, to try to tighten up in midfield a little bit when they were three goals down. But he had no choice because otherwise, they, you know, it could have been almost a cricket score. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm surprised Blake didn't start. But um, uh, the, the other person you talked about, Lee, and I've never seen Lee so quiet ever. Uh, and I, so I think we, all, we talked about who were, who were good for Stoke and we forgot Mark Wilson, who was superb at left back, I thought. That's another central midfielder. Yeah, but he doesn't look, he's a footballer, Wilson. You know, he can play holding he mid, can. he can play fullback. He's an excellent footballer. He's sort of like, you know, the British Isles answer to Yaya Torre in some ways. <laughs> no, I mean in the sense that, that that he's tall and looks a little awkward, but yeah, he's certainly he's good. He's skillful on the ball. He's huh? certainly versatile and he's skillful on the ball. Yeah. Now, let's talk a little bit about Silent Stan Kroenke in, in our debate. Um, Wednesday night, Arsenal have a, a, a big uh, derby against uh, Spurs. Spurs are pushing for the top four. but And, of course, at the weekend, there was this bizarre game against, uh, against Liverpool, or a game with a bizarre epilogue. Um, I want to check it back to Stan Kroenke. By now, foreign ownership isn't really news. Um, we're used to... Cronky being here because he's been an Arsenal shareholder for for a while now. Mm-hmm. Um, but Ollie, I, I wanted to start with you. Um, we we tend to treat about sort of we tend to treat sort of uh, especially American owners as sort of being all the same, but they're actually different. From, from what you've read, what do you make of this guy compared to say um, you know Warner and, and, and Henry who are there on your doorstep? Um, I, I think it's hard to know what to make. Of him, full stop, really, and and, and even judging by his, his record and reputation in America, it's, it's hard to it's hard to say with any certainty that he will have the same approach um, in England to a football club. I mean, I think um, George Gillette in particular was talking when it, when he bought Liverpool or he and Hicks bought Liverpool as if he was some kind of benevolent, benign uncle type figure. I, I genuinely think he he said at one stage, in a few in a few months' time, you'll be calling me Uncle George and um, I, I, I doubt even his nephews and nieces calling me Uncle George <laughs> but, um, so the um, I mean the uh, owning a Premier League football 
club changes changes people. It, it doesn't necessarily uh, make people show off their best side, or, or sometimes sometimes it makes people show a, a benevolent side that they don't normally have. But it, it, I don't know. I, I wouldn't judge him based on his, on his track record. I would judge him on, on what he does over the next three, four, five years and, and beyond because um, there's a lot of people who've come to um, England with reputations as, as great businessmen and great um, and great uh, custodians who have proved to be otherwise when well, it's come down to them. Yeah, Ollie, your, your Uncle George analogy is apposite because um, a spokesman for the Arsenal Supporters Trust said that Cronkey had looked him in the eye and said, I don't want to change the way Arsene Wenger runs this club. I, I like the way things are. I'm not, a, I'm not going to interfere. And I believed him was the, you know, the outcome of that. But this is before he, he starts his um, campaign to own the club. And, and as you say, as soon as you, if you do get control or enough control, that then you, then you judge why they did it in the first place. It's very hard to believe that someone wants to make a move to gain ownership and not have a vision that's different to the one that exists. Although, to be fair, in this case, we're talking about you know a rarest of rarities, a club that's already very well run, a club that's profitable. You know, it's kind of almost like a turnkey operation. You don't really need to to touch it as long if you think the profits are going to continue rolling in. And and I think with Kroenke, that that's kind of the sense that that we got in the past. I mean, the guys in the sports entertainment business. You know, he he uses his real estate company to go and buy a plot of land. He uses his construction company to go and build a sporting arena. He buys uh, uh, whether it's a hockey team or a basketball team or a football club. Uh, uh, and he buys them and gets them to play in the arena. If he can find another team in another sport that that can also is also compatible with the arena, he sticks them in the arena as well. He owns a ticketing company that sells tickets to the arena. Um, he owns the uh, and, and and he owns the t- TV network on which those games are shown. I mean, if slavery were still were still allowed in the U.S. or or if he had an apparel company, he would be fully vertically integrated. Um, I mean, Patty, Patty, is is this? Does it mean is, is he going to buy Harlequins and get them to play at the Emirates to help, you know, consolidate uh, or, 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 or to, to help maximize revenues? I don't, I don't know, uh, I, I don't know the details of his plans, but I, I do know that, that that broadly the Americans now sense uh, that uh, soccer in. Europe is going to be as profitable as uh, sports in the United States and as easy uh, to run at the moment it's an absolute bed of nails as as Alison and, and Ollie have pointed out um, a, a destroyer of reputations I think it'll be much more easily to become uh, a vuncular or, or a, a messiah um, in European football under financial fair play I think that's going to make a crucial difference. The Fenway, um, John Henry of the Fenway Sports Group made that very, very clear when he took over Liverpool. He said, without financial fair play, we wouldn't be here. Um, So um, I think that that will make a great difference. And I do agree. I think there's no club apart with the possible exception of Manchester United uh, better Placed in England to uh, just simply reap the benefits of financial fair play than Arsenal. I, I think it's a complete no-brainer. I think he's going to make a lot of money. I regret that people make money out of football, but there we go. 
Ollie, um, in, in, in light of what, what Patty said, that, you know, it's going to be an easy way to make money out of football and so on. And the reason I'm asking you is also because I suspect that I already know what Patty's going to say. In Germany, they famously have a rule where no individual owner uh, can, uh, can, can control more than 49% of a club's shares, effectively meaning that clubs are generally not I mean they, they are for profit entities but generally that they're, they're clubs and they have a diffuse shareholding and so on and you know no wealthy zillionaire would ever really want to buy a, a German club for that reason um is that a healthier more stable long-term model considering that also, you know, we, we, Patty said before that U.S. sports are profitable, but you know, the NBA lost collectively something like $720 million over the last two years and is heading for a lockout. The NFL is, is in a lockout right now. The owners want the players to give up more money and so on, take pay cuts, and that's with a salary cap and all that jazz. Well, uh, I mean, just going by what we've heard from Arsenal over the past few years, I mean, I've spoken to Ivan Gazidis on a number of occasions where he has said that the, the, the previous model at Arsenal where there were um, multiple investors i.e. Cronky um, uh, with his share and um, Usmanov with his share and, and the, you know, the late Danny Fisman and, and Lady Nina etc where, where they all had their stakes sort of across the board he was making the case that that was the, that was the perfect ownership model that was um, that was healthy that was stable and um, I'm sure uh, Ivan will be um, keen to talk up the positives of, uh, of the new situation just like um, I mean they, we sort of David Gill changed tack on 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 his debt is the road to ruin um, quote uh, regarding the Glazers, but it's I I, we, we just don't know. I, mean, I, I don't think um, Kroenke is going to buy be able to buy the entire club because Usmanov doesn't seem like he will accept um, accept um, uh, the, the offer for, for his shareholding so maybe that will be that maybe that will be a sort of check and balance maybe that will be a sort of blocking so. stake and it will be, be on the board he's not on the board now I mean he's just going to sit there with his 28% stake or however much he owns and, and that'll be that well, right? and, but, but and maybe, maybe he can wail in the background and maybe he can, he can do this and that and maybe that is healthy maybe it isn't but it's um, I, I don't think there is any sort of one uh, model that will work for every club or, or, or that we can say is disastrous I, I think different different things work different things don't work but more more often than not it depends on the um, on the individuals and what their approach is going to be whether they're prepared to invest or, or whether they're determined to borrow against the club but the other thing um is Usmanov came out and offered to dilute his shares by selling some of them to the Arsenal Supporters Trust yes. if Kroenke agreed to do the same in an equal proportion um and Kroenke said no Alison, should we be reconsidering Uzmanov? Well, it seems a jolly decent thing to do, doesn't it? I, I, but it depends on your motive, doesn't it? it depends on your motive. And, and it, we ha- what we haven't mentioned, and it probably sounds naive to do so, and yet it's crucial, is how much of um, passion and love do the people with the money in the club have for the club? Often diverse ownership, all it means is that no decisions are made and therefore managers stay longer. Managers who stay longer often perform better. So by default, you get a Mm. divided ownership results in good management because they don't have that that sort of, you know, totalitarian, I'm in charge, I do what I want 
um, the extreme example being Chelsea, where there's there's nobody um, monitoring what comes out at the top at Chelsea. There's, it's just one man with power who stamps all over the the club. So you could be describing Manchester United there, and they've been pretty successful. But yes, they but came the, but the after. Man, they the came man, after the, 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 the model. <laughs> the man at their club is a football club rather than. <laughs> uh, a I was joking. How about some quick hits? Gareth Bale wins the PFA award. Um, Patty, I think this is the stupidest, most meaningless major award in English football. Um, am I wrong? And who would you vote it for if you were a professional footballer who doesn't really enjoy watching football on television and prefers spending this time in the company of young ladies and, and plenty of alcohol? And, and yet you still had a, a PFA rep on your team who nagged you to return your ballot in early February because presumably there is no internet access at whatever club you play for is training ground. And the only way to do is send it back to Gordon Taylor is by Royal Mail. No, you're not wrong. Uh, uh, I mean, vote in February. I mean, it would make sense if it were the calendar year, uh, but obviously not for the season. Yes, and the answer is I would have voted at that time for Charlie Adam. And I would now be sort of thinking, well, I wasted my vote. They all did. Why do they vote in February? Have you ever asked them? Uh, no. I <laughs> Didier Drogba has a monster game as Chelsea come from behind to win at West Brom. Ollie, if you were Ancelotti, given his situation, would you just start Drogba ahead of Torres the rest of the season? And given that Chelsea are now just two points behind Arsenal, can they actually finish second? Uh, can they actually finish second? Of course they can. They're only two points behind, as you say, and uh, Arsenal looking uh, unconvincing. So, I mean, second place is up for grabs between um, those two clubs and Manchester City. Even Tottenham wouldn't give up on it at this, at this stage. But Ancelotti, dilemma. I mean, Drogba ahead of Torres, that was a thing to do before now. Now that they've probably got less to play for, maybe now is the time to be looking to integrate uh, Torres in slightly less high-pressure situations. But there shouldn't be a dogmatic decision either way. Kenny Dalglish has been chucking kids into the first team, first Flanagan, then Robinson, without forgetting Spearing, and John Joe Shelby as well, who's not a local kid, but nevertheless still a teenager. Allison, um, is Kenny just trying to figure out which of these guys is good enough for Anfield, or do they actually have a future at the club? Well, Kenny played them because he had no choice, but they did remarkably well. Um, Flanagan survives uh, a debut at Anfield against Manchester City. And then, as Kenny pointed out, it's probably harder to play a second game for the club. And he, he, he wasn't perfect, but he did, he did a grand job at the Emirates. Robinson had played two or three minutes at Hull uh, and then gets his proper debut, again, away from home, a team going for the title. Um, so... If you can't draw conclusions from just one or two matches, but if you wanted, if you felt you had to draw conclusions, then they definitely have a future. Anyway, Gab, one for you. <clears throat> Part one of the current Clásico extravaganza finished in a one-all draw between Real Madrid and Barcelona at the Bernabeu. Part two is in Valencia on Wednesday night with the Copa del Rey final. What did you make of that one on Saturday night and what can we expect on Wednesday? And should it have been at Wembley? <laughs> Actually, that's an excellent point. Wembley should just be rented out for these sorts of games. I mean, why Valencia? I'm sure everybody would fancy the trip here. Uh, no, I, I mean, I, I think Mourinho went with uh, with an approach which he would probably, he himself would probably find as overcautious. Um, there's no need to play that way. It is Barcelona, but you're Real Madrid. You should play to your strengths. And not coincidentally, after they uh, had a man sent off and went and goal down, I thought they dominated large spells of the second half, which is positive. I think we're going to see a very different uh, Real Madrid in the Copa del Rey final. Um, I'm just not sure it's going to be enough to beat Barcelona. 
You can go to www.thetimes.co.uk. You'll find all your news, your gossip, your analysis. My web chat is on Mondays. Patty's is on? Tuesdays. And I believe Ollie K is on Wednesday. So you can join us for all of those. You can follow us on Twitter. We're all on there. We all love Twitter. We're, we're, we're tweetaholics, especially Allison, whose Twitter handle is... I don't know. There you go. Look her up. That's all we got time for today. So till next week. Bye-bye. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.